he never attended meetings because he wasn't attended a guy to attend meetings. Uh, he'd never been in the party. He never donated money to the party. He was never a member. And the very idea of someone with his character, if you thought about it for a few minutes, with his nature and his character and his rage for independence, the idea of him ever being in any kind of organization with a top-down structure would be insane. He wouldn't last 10 minutes. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. Portanone 2023. Regular Portanone correspondent Lockie Heiss and I talk about what we saw at the Great Silent Film Festival. The only woman animator, or so she claimed, was the subject of a talk given at Portanone. I talked with animation scholar Mindy Johnson. And I welcome back biographer Scott Iman to talk about how Charlie Chaplin went from beloved comic in Hollywood to exile in Switzerland. Keep up with modern times, you pilgrim. Subscribe so you never miss an episode, and leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks, kid. The 42nd Giornate del Cinema Muto, the silent film festival in Portanone, Italy, took place October 7th through 14th. And as we do every year, Nitrateville member Lockie Heiss and I look back at what we saw, including the revival of a German silent action hero, a series of films devoted to the influence of the modern artist Sonia Delaunay, and a new score for the British social drama Hindel Wakes an early film about the new freedom of women in the workforce. You know, last year, I said that you kind of, after a week, you kind of have like one image of the festival that you recall. Do you have an image that you recall? Well, it has to be Sonia Delaunay's wonderful poster uh, of Perrault the Clown. You can go see it in the uh, show post, folks. Exactly. Yeah, no, it's it, it had a lot of um, positive um, comments, and um, so I, 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 I chatted it up to everybody I saw, and everybody was very happy with it. And yeah. uh, um, they were, um, so she and her husband, Robert Delaunay, were a couple that were part of the art movement called Orphism, which um, emphasizes color and design, and um uh, okay, I'm circles. glad you you know a name for it because someone said cubism in notes somewhere or something. And I didn't think that was quite right, um, but I didn't know what else to call it. Constructivism, or I don't know. No, but cubism is is uh, is not exactly completely wrong. Uh, there was this uh, a number of movements that hit all at the same time in sure. France and, and also other countries, and uh, so f- when they first started trying to describe what what Dylan A was doing and his um, colleagues 
they called it a version of Cubism, but quickly they saw it was you know a different. Cubism ends up being desaturating the colors. It was really more of lines, lines and angles, whereas what the Delaunay's were way more interested in was was the expression of color. It's a fabulous uh, design. They, that was part of the program to get, to get this back to the festival. The program was um, uh, uh, Sonia Delaunay and the um, design, the visual design that she had with French films of that era. And and so the uh, the, the scene of the of the uh, clown comes in one of the uh, serials that, that we right. see through the week. All right. So yeah, I mean that was interesting. I thought the two main feature films that showed off Sonia Delaunay's uh, design work were you know were so totally different. Um, I, I compared her work turning up in these films to like when you see a movie from the sixties and suddenly there's a party scene and the kinks are playing in it or some other band that, you know, so you get two minutes of a band you like in a movie that otherwise doesn't really fit. Um, but this was, you know, the one was the serial, which I liked a lot. Le Petit Perigo, this kind of shaggy dog story, uh, about, a an endearingly humorous main character, the, the son of a stuffy old rich man. And he sort of has this long adventure involving this girl he sees at a distance and falls in love with and and her father owns a garage and all that somehow leads to this sort of like you know society of cathars plot or something going on i mean it's just it's complete nonsense but but we got one chapter of it each morning and that was kind of pleasant you know 40 minutes of uh the little parisian the petit perigo uh up to his latest hijinks i found that very endearing I did, uh, and if I, we were talking earlier about trying to come up with a handle for this this festival, and my first thought was that, that this was a festival of of, of challenging, uh, uh, tackling difficult programs, and uh, serials are, I think, one of the most challenging programs that a festival like this can do because they they don't you know the aspects of the serial is that you see that once a week and it's more like a tv show that's very sense. much and so yeah they're, you know, they're not designed to watch every day and so the festival has a real uh question of how and i think they they did a, the best job possible they put it on at nine o'clock in the morning and, and those of us who who were um crazy enough to, to, to be there at that hour, you know, after five cups of espresso, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, could, could watch it and the rest of us could sleep later. But I think that, um, this did remind me very much of, of actually of modern, uh, uh, cable series where they, you know, where you can do five or six shows in a row and, and it has some of the pluses and minuses. The minuses are, is that the, they're, they have a four or five hours of, of narrative to fill. And, and while some of this stuff was wonderful, otherwise you can, you could see there was some fill going on. So you just have to take the bad with the good in this situation. Yeah. You know, that, that there was areas of that, that dragged on, but you know, you, you overall, it was a very, um, the, the, the actor who played, um, the little Parisian was very pleasant and, and a, a clearly a fan favorite. So yeah. He carried, carried and it was theory. fun that we got to see him again in the Fiat film, Vendemiere. Uh, he turns up briefly in that. So, 
Um, you know, again, it, it's the typical Portnoni experience. Someone I had never heard of before I got there is suddenly one of my favorites uh, by the end, <laughs> end of the week, you know. Well, I, I, it certainly had a wonderful end to the series, the very meta ending where, yeah, you know, at the, he's got all these things that have happened to him because he can't decide what he wants to do for his life. And then he ends up, well, I want to be a movie actor. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I want to be in films. So, of course, everybody's got to smile at that one. Uh, The other big Sonia Delaunay film was, for me, hands down the most miserable experience of the the week, uh, which was uh, Le Vertige. Uh, Basically means vertigo, and that's pretty much what it is. Directed by Marcel Lerbier, and it was Russian's fleet of France and the woman who's married to this ogre of an old general thinks that some guy she meets in France reminds her of her lover who was killed in Russia. And first of all, I had the problem that, you know, people come back from the dead a lot in silent movies. So Mm -hmm. I wasn't sure, you know, is this, is this the guy come back from the dead or is this some other guy? And if you don't settle that question early on, you really had trouble knowing what was going on in this movie. But I also just kind of hated all the characters and all the acting. The one thing I did like was Sonia Delaunay's uh, set for a restaurant scene that happens you know, late in the movie. It, it looked very chic. I would go to that restaurant, especially if I did not have to go with an old, grumpy old Russian general. Yeah, I solved that problem by, by not watching the film. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but I Good did, call. Um, I, I, well, you have to pick and choose there and uh, handicap that one away. But I did see they had a, a really interesting um, discussion of her work with other films. Uh, so there's a, along with the movies that we're talking about, there's a program that goes on academic discussion and, you know, they just reviewed, they, they were able to uh, show slides of her work and what happened and films that we didn't see. So that's always a nice, uh, uh, if, if you're, if you're not completely enamored by the film, there's a, you know, you can sort of go to plan B and that works sometimes. Right. (laughs) All right. So my image for the festival overall is formal wear. There was so much formal wear in this festival. Um, Partly it was the Harry Peel films, and we can get into him next, uh, which seemed inevitably to start with a masked ball and people in in, uh, formal wear, or the guy who is accused of the crime and flees in his clown costume from the, you know, from the masked ball. And I, I, you know, I I just couldn't help but think of like cops being, be on the lookout for a clown in, you know, uh, (laughs) you know, all that stuff. It's like at one point he even gets a new coat, but he doesn't like toss away the clown outfit. So he's still like the most recognizable person in Germany at that moment. But yeah, Harry Peel. So I don't know. What did you know about Harry Peel before this? Anything? I knew the real basics that he was an action adventure uh, star in Germany, and I knew that I knew that almost all of his films were destroyed in, in a bombing um, raid you know, during World War II. And and I, you know, the tackling this was a festival of tackling difficult programs, and Harry Peel's hard because most of his films were gone. Right, and uh, I think almost I think all the ones we saw were, were found in, in, in archives outside of Germany, in yeah. other places, and 
And that had its, all of its own problems, issues, because I think we only saw one film that was relatively complete. The other ones were from Prague and other places where they had to kind of piece them together. And and you got a pretty good idea what was going on, but, you know, there's this missing scenes. But I was very happy that they did the program. Part of the reason they haven't done the program before is because it's just taken this much time to, to and, and the extra technology, a lot of this was uh, DCP, digital, because because they uh, they had to pull so many different elements together from different archives to get something to show. And um, so this is what's kind of part of what this festival was. And um, I think Harry Peel is clearly um, a version of James Bond. I mean, this is uh, very much, and you're talking about the tuxedos. I think about the Bond films, and there, there's tuxes there, tuxes there all the way through, and then they... He pulls off the tux and it's um, a scuba suit. So it's right. very, very similar. Because that's in Goldfinger. And it's like, did they did they steal that? Or is it just that sooner or later, you're going to put a, a guy in a tux in a, in a scuba suit? <laughs> you know, if you're making, I, if you're making that kind of movie. Who knows? I, I think it's that way. They're just they're making these adventure films. And you've got, you know, you see lots of tuxedos. And I go, my mind goes, White tie or black tie? Let's yeah. see. You know, is it semi-formal or really formal? Mostly black, a little white. Mostly, yeah, well, but the stuffy people have the white ties on. So I'm looking right. at this, you know, with, with those of us who watch these films for years and years, your blind starts going off into these very pedantic, esoteric kind of, <laughs> um, you know. But but that kind of makes sense because, you know, they, we think of it you know, that someone thought about this when they made the films, right? This guy's sure. got a white and um I think what what the other what I'm really getting at is that they had the production values that were high enough to to allow for this, and it really pays off in, in these kind of films because you're kind of watching it for the for these uh, big you're watching it for these for for all these production values, and you're watching it for robots. Yes, and the robot. Goodness. And apparently, wow. it's the, it was, what we saw was not even the first movie that he had, that he made that had a robot in it. He tend, apparently tended to reuse things a lot. Um, yeah, I think the and, first that was called The Big Bet, and and it was a it's a lost film, and they but you know right it was a big hit, so why not bring a big back bring back a bigger robot? Sure, yeah, that, yeah. that shoots lightning bolts. <laughs> so I hope people who listen to this can can get a, a sense of how much fun this particular episode was that we watched uh, because you know, see, that just came I, out of nowhere. You know, I, I mean, I enjoyed the kind of more outre uh, Republic serial moments, but I kind of had enough of Harry Peel by the second film of his that I saw. And then later in the week, people were starting to say, oh, you know, he's actually charming now because we were getting into the late 20s. So maybe he was he was getting better at it. He was getting influences from outside. Who knows? I, I wanted to bring up two more points, and then we can leave her. But there's a, one of his films is Revelin. Right, that's the, the, that's the, the, the one giant the robot. robot. Film. But he, there's also a large head in that, which very much prefigures the um, the, the the scene in Metropolis, where yeah, you have, yeah, uh, the Moloch. Uh, Moloch. I mean, and then wow, that was a so yeah. The visual design was was great. At, the plot wasn't much. And then there, there's one film of his I did think that worked out best, and that was Zagano, um, where he... Yeah, more, that's uh, the one everybody was saying was good, so I went to the next one after that. It was Zorro plus Robin Hood, and um, he has a light touch that makes the whole thing work 
um, and it's not too heavy. Uh, the plot actually works fairly well. And I think the, uh, the what happens with a lot of the other ones is that they, they, they're too long, they go on, there's too many uh, things, too many fights, but Zagano was able to do it a good, you know, I think you've got a sample of a film that works for, you know, well for that format. So, uh, but yes, yeah, so the other... The other films of his tend to, to be repetitive. So, uh, but Zagano was a period film where he's you know cast in the Zorro character, and it's 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 both funny. It's very much a Douglas Fairbanks version, but um, but he has his own way of you know of doing it, which is which is very uh, fun to watch. All right, so I mean, to me, one of the one of the real high points was a pair of German films that were not familiar to me. You know, one I had heard of was Die Straße, the Street which is really kind of the beginning of those sort of expressionist street movies. The Last Laugh, Sunrise, uh, you know, The Joyless Street, all those kind of things seem to owe something to, the, to that film. And also I thought uh, it really had a Warner Brothers flavor because there's, you know, pre-code Warner Brothers. There's a th- you, basically the, a husband goes out for the night to try and get himself into as much trouble as he can. And he meets a lot of sharpsters and I just expected to see Guy Kibbe and Ned Sparks in it or something. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was, I think that was one of the highlights of the festival. Everybody I talked to was, was uh, happy uh, to see it in such a a fantastic, uh, I think that was, that, that gets the award for the, for the best looking film that we saw, uh, you know, the, the uh, restoration was, was terrific. And, uh, Right. Yeah. So uh, that I, I like that film a lot. And did you notice um, um, Max Shrek? Max Shrek. I know. Uh, you never get a close up of him, so I just kind of had to take it on faith that that was Max Shrek. I wanted, you know, I wanted to see him up close. It's proof that he wasn't really a vampire, assuming they shot, <laughs> shot part of it yeah. during the day. So he he played a blind man and. Uh, He's sort of deep on the in the uh, the business of being a blind man, so you you don't see him menacing in any in any way. But you, but I mean, he certainly he certainly when you see the guy, he looks like a really blind. So he he was a character actor and had a lot of work in the theater, and right. I think was was a pretty um, well known for 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 being doing character roles. And so if you you know this film is available if you want to see Shrek and. Um, yeah, <laughs> and, and something that that you actually can, you know, see him do kind of do acting. Um, here it here's the film for that. Uh, then the other German film was the mountain film, uh, Der Berg des Schicksals, Mountain of Destiny, which certainly wins the Siegfried Krakauer Award for a film that most seems to hint. Uh, where Germany's going in the next twenty years, uh, <laughs> because you know. Everybody must face the mountain, and they must, you know, f- conquer the mountain, fight it, and conquer it. Um, you know, so and there's an awful lot of climbing in it. So I think some people found it kind of boring, but the print was so gorgeous. Uh, and you know, just when you've seen enough mountains, we get a snowstorm too. So thing things perk up with, uh, you know, everything looking different. So you know, but I. I I enjoyed it. Enjoyment is maybe not entirely the right word, um, but I appreciated, you know, what it was doing. It was trying to do something new on film. I mean, we're 20 years into the medium's existence. Maybe climbing mountains is going to be a big thing. Well, it wasn't quite. I mean, even Louis Tranker, who's in it, kind of had to, you know, turn mountain films into westerns after a certain point because 
mountain films are kind of all the same. Oh, you're climbing? Where are you going? The top? Oh, okay. Um, so, you know, it doesn't, uh, there's not a lot of variation in the genre. Well, these are typically what, um, it's the old story about um, a guy and a girl on a mountain. Right. And uh, <laughs> it's that two suit of romance. And uh, actually, there's two guys. So one of them's got to die, fall off the mountain. So that Right. Oh, I mean, as can. soon as I saw the opening credits that said his son, Louis Tranker, I knew that, that the top build guy was going to die and Louis Tranker would have to follow his legacy and actually conquer the mountain. I mean, it's just, exactly. it's right there in <laughs> yeah. the credits. Now that we've gotten very German and dark, let's talk comedy. There was the whole comedy series that uh, Steve Massa and Uli Rudel did. And then there's also, there were just some random comedies here and there. I really liked the one with Sid Chaplin. Uh, I think it's called, Oh, what a nurse. It was, yeah. It was basically like a six reel two reeler. I mean there wasn't there wasn't any particular depth to the characterizations or how those situations built. But it was funny as hell. It you know, it got laughs steadily throughout. Sid Chaplin, I'm I'm all for him. There's a great bit where he he's trying to discourage the girl from being interested in another guy who's actually one of the baddies, but she hasn't figured that out yet. And he pantomimes removing his teeth like like he's saying the guy has false teeth and yeah. you know pulls them out and then he's like kind of gummy you know and then yeah. and then it's like he puts them back and suddenly he has giant teeth and i thought all that was just like really well done and you know it just shows what a skilled comedian he was even if he's not his half brother so um i like that a lot yeah uh, i agree with everything you're saying he was very skilled and perfect fan of mine for for what you very clear the comedy was very clear and i also really liked the walter ford one walter ford is someone who just sort of sticks in my mind he was he was kind of a go-getter comedian in the silent era like uh harold lloyd or something but he didn't want to act in sound he just didn't feel comfortable with taking his persona into sound um, so instead he became a director and he directed a very good sort of proto Hitchcockian, uh, thriller called Rome Express, among other things, uh, that was actually written by Laundrie and Gilead who wrote The Lady Vanishes. Um, mm. but, it, but it's, it's like a better Hitchcock movie than Hitchcock had made up to that point, kind of. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, anyway, so there was one of his last starring comedies, uh, was it called? You wouldn't believe it. I think uh, where he's an inventor who's trying to show off his radio-controlled tank to the to the war office, and then there's some spies from some country, uh, Ruritania, I'm sure, uh, who are who are going after him, and the whole long sequence where they're like chasing him in the subway, and he keeps going up and down the stairs, and he has to he has to tip the the porter each time. So you know, running away from these guys costs him like ten pounds by the time he's done. I'd say that was one of the most unusual films we saw this week, and uh, it was most of it was funny, and there were parts of it but that were not. But but they all sort of. But, I mean, the end of the film where, where the tank goes, um, the remote tank becomes um, wild. <laughs> yeah, it goes wild. <laughs> you know, and, and oh, we were talking about this afterward with, with my, my friends in that it was shot. It was a comedic uh, scene or situation, but the tank's coming at everybody, and it has a quite a serious 
quality to it. I mean, you really had the sense of 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 how of how uh, dreadful it, uh, something that large and ominous can come and and then it just, you know people run away and it flat starts flattening cars and starts actually causing trouble. And it's very unusual, you know, because typically slapstick, you know, it's like it's like watching a cartoon. A person right. can fall off a cliff, and then you know the coyote is okay in the next scene. But you have that sense that people wouldn't be okay here because this this tank can actually flatten you. Yeah, it, it could kill you. There's no question of that. Yeah, I mean, the, I like the movie, but it, it was very uh, odd. Like I think you were saying that too. It just has this really strange, um, somber quality along with the humor. And I, I did want to mention um, Harry Carey. Uh, the, the program, if anything, was it was ambitious to the point where we were, you know, there was a lot of. Um, they just had films that, that were now available because of, of what I mentioned before. And uh, uh, Harry Carey uh, had uh, some films out in a similar way from different archives that they, they pulled together. Um, Blue Streak, which is 1920, and The Fox, 1921. And uh, I did want to mention that. Uh, and I think it is the, the Fox where you have the end of the film where Harry Carey puts the, the arm on the other arm because he's right. saying that he's not going to get the girl. And, you know, I, I sort of waved at my friends and said, there it is. The, the searchers. You know, yeah. Yeah. The searchers. There it is. You see the, the shot is almost like completely duplicating that. And right. so that was, that was fun watching the film just to, to see, you know, I've read that was the case, and there it was, right, right there in front of me. Yeah, I like the Harry Carey films. I mean, he's certainly one of those old pros, uh, even though this is the early era of his stardom. But he's kind of a bit wrinkly, and and you know, the the one where he's like teaching some kid from out east how not to be Little Lord Fauntleroy and become a nice, you know, a <laughs> yeah. western kid. That was totally right. charming. I did feel that they were. Rather formulaic. Universal clearly knew what they wanted him to do and didn't want to deviate too far from it. And that's why we end up with, I mean, I, I understood John Ford's Hellbent better because I had seen it before. It's it's also out from Kino on a Blu-ray. But, uh, you know, it basically starts with somebody writing a letter to a supposed Western author saying, you know, could we have a movie in which the guy is not such a a cliche, either the all good or all bad. Mm-hmm. And that was basically, it felt like Ford and Carrie, you know, sending a message to the front office saying, you know, we're not, we're not just going to crank out the same story over and over here. Yeah. So. Uh, I mean, it's, it's odd that Harry Carey and William, William S. Hart could be pretty contemporary and yet have such different, uh, characters that they portrayed. Um, yeah. I have to say that I, I'm I'm more into the William S. Hart tragic uh, hero sure. type, and uh, but ironically, Harry Carey, who looks way more authentic in a sense because he just looks like he did, you know, like someone you'd find out west. Yeah, weatherbeaten. But, but he weatherbeaten. He's just somebody who's like, if you had to, if you know, bring reach your hand out to somewhere out where the scrubs uh, are and pull it out. You'd find Harry Carey there, but right. <laughs> but he, but no, he's he you know, on the East Coast. He went to <clears throat> law school, went to NYU. Oh, really? And and William is hard, although he's also from the New York area. But he went with his uh, uh, dad and spent time uh, out in you know the Dakotas with when was with the Indians there and and saw gunfights there, and so he had he actually has more 
authenticity of really having it. And you see that, more I think, in his films. Where yeah. He has completely more street cred. And you see that with his films where, where the, the, uh, the towns that he visits, they look like they look like scrub towns. They just look like they're little hovels. And I think he was, you know, at some level he was aware of, whereas I think the Harry Carey is, is completely more in the tradition of, um, it's the ide- idealized movie West where, you know, five guys have settled a town and already there's a beautiful manor house with nice china <laughs> and everything. It was a picket fence with a picket fence. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Um, I don't know any, any other films that were standouts for you. Well, I mean, I, I was finally able to see Hensel Wakes, which yeah. I, uh, you know, it was, it's a it's a very good film. I think I was a little disappointed only because I it had been talked up for so many years. So you know, I'm thinking I'm watching the the, the great film of 27. I I, I think that I think if I had seen it cold, I would have really enjoyed it better. Um, and they have the, the you know the parts of it are wonderful the documentary scenes of right of Blackpool's resort and and you really see where the kitchen sink films come from um, right you know twenty thirty years later because this is very much interestingly there's a the last time it was filmed was in the seventies for British TV and yeah. it was it was directed by Laurence Olivier who clearly yeah. had some memories of it as an important play from when he was young or something like that. Um, yeah, I thought, you know, I mean, first of all, a gorgeous score written for a small pit orchestra by Maude Nellison. I, you know, I, she performed things last year too. I don't really know that much about her work, but I mean, the, the score was just exemplary to me. Uh, sensitive but also appropriate to the theme of the scene so you know the blackpool scene sounded like a resort um but also you know compared to something like le vertige which annoyed me so much um i really thought hindlewakes just shows how well you can direct a silence so you always know what people are thinking and doing. You always know what they're about. You know, everybody at at a certain point in the film, everybody kind of has a position that they're advocating for. And there's relatively little in the way of title cards. Uh, It's just very good at, at communicating who, you know, who's up to what at any given moment. I mean, and and I like the film very much in that it's, it's adult film. I mean, about people who are young, but, but but real. Uh, I mean, they go off for the for the weekend, and and now then they're put in this in the impossible position of having to you know make a life decision for for what was a very uh, uh, you know um, casual, ca- right? Yes, exactly. So I thought I, I you, when you when you see uh, great stories like this, you know, was from a very important play originally, and you and then you see the the damage done by when they, when the code got clamped on in the thirties, because all the stuff was coming out, you know, before 33. And, and then you had this, you know, and then you had all these things just censored for, for, for more you know, for more than a decade. And you see how much was missed when, when you couldn't do stuff like Kindle wakes, you know, after 1934. Uh, but they saw, we saw the, uh, the images of the people, you know, in their, doing their job and being very careful with it. And I liked, I, you know, there was a lot of, authenticity there that I appreciated. Uh, the the film that we haven't talked about yet is Hell's Heroes. Which yeah, is a yeah. Film. And I like that quite a bit. And um, I, I, it was a real um, um, uh, bookend for me because I had seen that in 94. I think it was my first year, one of my first oh. years at the festival. 
And I saw that at the old Verity and, um, you know, it was fun to compare what I knew about what was going on then and now. And, and I went through the whole film wondering if they were going to have the, the, uh, the choir at the end. And so I was happy that it worked out the way, you know, they, they had done that in 94 and, uh, right. Yeah, it's funny. My my friend JB told me that uh, when they did it in 94, um, William K. Everson objected to the fact that the choir came in and sang Silent Night at the end because he thought, (laughs) here's this, you know, here's this very neo realist, tough, gritty Western, and suddenly it's become a Christmas movie. And it's like, yeah, but there's, there's clues all the way through it. I mean, when, when one of the, the, good bad cowboys you know is at his end you know we see him between two cactuses like you know christ with the two thieves on either side of him uh you know so there's like there's little hints being dropped um that we're in a little bit of an allegorical territory yeah well a little bit yes and the, but the film has at the uh, i like the film a lot and i think Wilder's early films are just not talked about much for, I think it's for very simple reasons that they weren't available in the right. 60s, 70s when, when the uh, canons of how these books were written by the, the, you know, the, the great writers of, and so people just didn't know about them. And, but they're, they're wonderful films and there's um, um, a technique that you don't hear much about anymore called deflected detail. And it was a common, commonly used in silent era and the deflected detail is when you're showing a deflecting or some detail uh, uh, that's deflected from the, what you're the main topic, but because you're seeing the detail, you're getting a bigger view of the whole picture. And the, the, what I'm talking about in particular is toward the end of the film where you, you, you have the people who are, who are in the desert and they're, they're dying of thirst and you see the one person left and you see, what was it? What's the first thing he, you so you have a long tracking shot in the sand and the first thing you, you see the steps, and you see the steps being more staggered, and then you see the, that he's dropped his rifle, and then you you know the camera keeps tracking along, and then you see other things that he drops, and 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 you get the point that, that you know he's he's really come to the terms of what's what's going to be what's really important in his world, right? And you know the gold goes off, and then this other goes off, and then you know, the last thing that's left, of course, is him holding holding the child, right? I mean, it's a wonder it's a wonderful scene, and and if it was just shot with him kind of staggering the desert, you would, you would lose all that impact would be lost. Cause you wouldn't see these things one at a time. Yeah. Yeah. Now I was a really beautiful and powerful film. I, of course I'd seen the talkie version, which has its own strengths in the, you know, it's an early talkie. So the creakiness adds to the, the mm-hmm. feel of the remote West and things like that. But the silent, you know, is equally good. If I'd seen them in an opposite order, I'd, have different opinions about what the strengths of each are, I think, but yes. Yeah. I, I think, I think to, just to recap, I think it was um, the end of the pandemic. I think, um, so if, if I had to say anything in conclusion of this, um, there, there was no sense. The last festival had, you, know, you could still feel the pandemic was lingering, but this one uh, was kind of back to back to business and uh, the crowds were back and, Everybody seemed to be, um, you know, celebrating after the film. So, so this is good news because, um, uh, you know, I think that I think it's a healthier world if we have uh, 
the, the Portanoni um, option for us uh, to, you know, to get away from to forever one week every October. Well, and you know, it was mentioned in the speech for the Russian woman who won the uh, uh, Sean Mitri Prize, but you know, the kind of the the joke that's not really a joke is you greet people at at Portanone by saying "Welcome home," and yeah. you know, obviously for someone coming from Russia and with all the world situation involving Russia at the moment, that you know that is a particularly poignant meeting for her. But I think. You know, we all kind of feel that. It's like, you know, I definitely, this being my third year, I I had more of a sense of, you know, oh, here's my old friends. Here's my coffee shop. Here's my, you know, that's the pizza I, I particularly like. You know, all those things. I was, it was nice to be in Portanone again, my my other place. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I think that that's an expression that's really got currency over the last couple of years, I think, um, you know, they say that at the opening night of the festival, welcome home, and they say it when you know, when the festival's over, and and there's it's true um, uh, for those of us who put a lot of um, our lives into into this part of film history. I think uh, it's it's a it's a place we can consider uh, home. It's it's a place where we go and, and we you know we love the, the films, we love the people we meet, and um, it's a week where we can be with. We can do that, uh, and let's uh, let's hope for another great festival for next October. One of the programs each year at Portanone is the Jonathan Dennis Memorial Lecture, named in honor of a pioneering New Zealand film archivist. This year's lecture was given by animation scholar Mindy Johnson and focused on women in the early wildcat days of the animation industry, and one in particular named Bessie Mae Kelly, who billed herself as the only woman animator. Which, as Johnson shows, was not quite true, but still shows her pivotal place in the early days of the medium. I spoke with Johnson from California and started by asking, how did you hear of Bessie Mae Kelly and what got you interested in her? It was a bit of a journey. Uh, I'd had a theory after I'd completed uh, my um, volume on primarily the women of Disney animation. It does go beyond there, but from the very beginning, uh, early, early women of, of celluloid and, and cinema and uh progresses up to the advent of digital. And um, some colleagues over at the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences said, you know, you know, you've got to go earlier and wider now. And I said, yeah, I'm aware. <laughs> I'm sure there are more women in animation. So I'd had a theory, just as Windsor McKay and Sid Smith and the Terry brothers had been in vaudeville, you know, I thought, well, it, let's start there. Since I knew records just did not exist, I'd been through the brain material um, at Library of Congress and had a, a understanding of, of Margaret Bray, but um, there were no records or names of personnel, per se. So I thought, well, let's start with vaudeville. So I spent several months culling through magazine vaudeville literature and magazines and sites and you know whatever i could find on women lightning 
sketch artists, quick draw artists, chalk talk artists, and they're a handful. But um, I came across a small article in an early Lyceum magazine that talked about the only woman animator. There's a claim. Yeah, and it, it seemed like hyperbole to me even, you know, that she'd worked at Bray and with Fleischer, and I went, no, no, no. <laughs> so um, pulling at threads for uh, several years, actually, from that first article and then pulling more, and for a number of years I had just her in the 1920s, having worked in vaudeville, but still no backup, no sense of, you know, who she was, where she was born. Did she marry? Did she have kids? Did she, when, where did she die? When did she die? Um, so it took a pandemic for me to finally have <laughs> some time to, all right, let's just do some deep digging digitally and peripherally. And um, and then a couple of odd, quirky twists of uh, fate and um, uh, learned that she actually lived the latter part of her life in my home state. And then in making a kind of an emergency trip back to Minnesota, I had an opportunity to do some continued, you know, just even random Google searching and unlocked uh, surviving members of her family. So that led to another journey, which led back to California, where I'm from. And that's where I met her great nephew, who had taken over the bulk of her collection uh, and had it in his garage <laughs> for many years. And um, so God bless pack rats. And, and yeah. <laughs> well, let's go back. Um, you talk about her being in vaudeville. What did an animator do in vaudeville? What were those programs like? Mm, oh, that's a great question. So the idea of a lightning sketch or quick sketch or uh, inverted sketching or kind of mystery sketching where you draw flowers in a, in a bowl and then you turn it upside down and it's a face peeking out from under a hat. Um, that kind of trick drawing was a, a real novelty on the stage. And as I said, there were a number of artists that did it, women included. Uh, she was billed as, quote, in quotes, the only woman animator, which makes sense in that in her day, her purview would have been there were other women animating in the very earliest days, years before she started, a couple of years that we have. But it's right about the time where animation is um, moving from a novelty in the early you know, 19 aughts, but then going into the 19 teens, it becomes an industry. And she's part of, she starts at Bray roughly late 1917, early 1918, somewhere in there. We don't have an exact date, but based on her writings and some of the material in her collection, that's the targeted time frame. Clearly she's there by 1918, but it may have been as early as 1917. Uh, Windsor McKay certainly had been on the platform doing quite well with his Gertie the Dinosaur years or a few years earlier, but she doesn't even understand animation until she sees Gertie the Dinosaur, the film that runs in her local theater up in Maine. And she says, that's it. That's what I want to do. 
And so she goes back to New York. She'd been studying in New York and she goes back to New York and essentially makes a pest of herself in the foyer of the Bray Studios. And finally, it's Mrs. Bray who says to Mr. Bray, give her a job. (laughs) (laughs) And she's hired. Well, yeah, you bring up uh, Mrs. Bray. I don't recall her first name. Um, but Margaret. She, Margaret, okay. But she's sort of a good example of where women had <clears throat> had a place in this industry that, you know, it was really, these were its rough and ready days. People were just yes. throwing together a, a business to make a few cartoons, and if they lasted more than a couple of months, they were lucky at it. Um and it, you know, and where it's not a, it was not uncommon for women, particularly wives of the guy whose name was on the place, to play a big role behind the scenes. Um, so yeah, there, tell me, tell me about some of those women. Well, you have like Laurel, uh, Laurel Bailey, the wife of G. G. Smith. You know, at the very dawn of of cinema, early cinema, you have. Uh, Julia Mathieu, who's working right along with Segundo de Chamon. You have uh, George Méliès and his second wife. I mean, there are women are, are involved and are in the room working in different roles. Um, I, you know, we don't have exact records, of course, but I think it's important that we acknowledge that women have always been there and have been present and certainly best proves that but in the case of margaret bray she was referred to as letty she was from germany uh, around the frankfurt region and she was a very keen and successful businesswoman she had a very sharp head for business Um, she uh, had a talent for finding prime property and turning it for a good profit and so with her real estate work um, she was doing quite well. She met a uh, young John Bray, who was a newspaper comic cartoonist, and uh, doing quite well and successful uh, for many years. They were married, so they were living life. And then John saw Gertie and thought, okay, this is something I want to dabble in, explore. He goes to Margaret and says, look, this is going to take time. I'm not going to be able to earn a living. i got to do it full on. She said, okay. Go, go ahead and do it, and supports him. She said, I'll earn the living. And for about a year and a half while he's working on the first film, The Artist's Dream, we know as today, she's footing the bill. She's financing, keeping the household going. She takes some additional work. It's her grandson, Paul Jr., is on record as saying, there wouldn't be a Bray Studios if it weren't for my grandmother. She was the business acumen his grandfather was the creative guy. So in a way where we can understand the Roy Disney relation to Walt Disney, that's kind of the role that Margaret Bray held for Bray Studios. Yeah, now there's another woman that you talked about. I thought this was really interesting because, I mean, she also kind of had that producer role, but she did it in a much a more traditional way that sort of suggests that she was, you know, had the power which, you know, we don't see you know, the people who are drawing, you know, drawing at animated studios never had the power. Uh, you know, Disney's history certainly shows that. But uh, that was Margaret Winkler. 
yeah. uh, billed sometimes as MJ Winkler to, you know, hide yeah. that she was a woman. Well, I think that was a wise step on her part. It was a purposeful step to operate kind of in a gender neutral fashion. She, um, you know, to be a little mysterious, there is on record of um, an instance where she uh, appeared at and, you know, she'd received this warm correspondence from theater owners, how great, you know, her successful her business was, how great she knew, you know, that MJ Winkler knew what they were doing. And then she appears at a theater, you know, please come visit us. And she appears at the theater and they're like, no, I've been corresponding with a man. And she said <laughs> it's a little bit to, to convince them that, no, I was the MJ Winkler they were corresponding with. And, oh, you know, so it was a bit of a shock. But she she was a, a sharp, intelligent, and very funny uh, a woman. She was hired by Harry Warner, uh, was his secretary for many years. And at the time when the Warner Brothers were fully distribution early on, and she learned. She learned the game. She learned the process. She learned the industry. She was good at it. And uh, so as the brother. Brothers Warner were dissolving their New York and distribution interests and going full bore in Southern California in production. Um, Harriet said to her, you're good at this. You should take these novelties and do something with them. So she did. Started her interests roughly 2021, I believe, and started MJ Winkler and uh, started with Felix the Cat. Uh, Felix was kind of unknown at that point. And she turned that character into the first iconic animated character to a household name. She took over the Coco the Clowns, uh, Fleischer's series, the Out of the Inkwells, and did beautiful work there as well, elevating the presence and, and exposure of these characters. And then in 1923, we're just past the anniversary, about a week or so ago, of... The Walt Disney Company, she sends, and uh, she had been corresponding with Walt. She had, was packing up his failed efforts in Kansas City and making his way to the West Coast. He had sent off a copy of his Alice's Wonderland he had created in Kansas City and received a telegram from Margaret saying, I think we can do business. And that marks the official start of the Walt Disney Company. You can look at the correspondence. She knows her stuff. She's a seasoned veteran. She'd been working in the industry for nearly a decade at that point. She's coaching a young Walt Disney. You know, you've got to put more comedy in here. She re-edits his work and sharpens it, makes it better. She knows what her audiences want. And uh, sadly, a number of uh, folks have sort of misinterpreted her, giving her some very negative and... Um, unpleasant uh, connotations about her and her work and it's just not there it doesn't bear out it's so people are just attacking her as the typical producer who wants to meddle in everything well i think uh, you know it's just not getting the full picture as i mentioned in my presentation um some have written about her as the live wire of animation, and it was, she was out of control, that Hungarian blood. Oh, she was <laughs> bossy, and, and what did she know? She's a woman. And, and yet, when you go back and do the research, in the 1920s, a live wire was actually, you know, when you step into a telegram, 
a telegraph office to send a telegram, you wanted a live wire. It meant your connection would go through, your business would go through. So you'd, you'd ask, do you have a live wire? And so that meant it was viable. It was, uh, you know, effective. You were going to succeed in your getting your message and get your business conducted. I firmly believe giving Walt Disney a start, but placing these characters into the popular zeitgeist as, as I mean, you have Felix toys and books and, you know, she was just masterful at, at marketing and publicity. So we have her to thank for happy meals with DreamWorks animation <laughs> characters on it. That's... Well, <laughs> all right. Far, um, but... <laughs> all right. Well, let's, uh, let's go back to Bessie Mae Kelly. Um, mm-hmm. What, where did her, her career in Hollywood kind of grinds to a halt and she goes back to Minnesota. Tell me about well, Whoa. she was never really part of Hollywood. She was always in New York. Oh, okay. Uh, Hollywood she, in the generic movie industry Yeah, sense. in the larger sense, yeah. <laughs> so she had been studying uh, fine art at the Pratt Institute in New York and, uh, as I mentioned, saw Gertie the Dinosaur roughly around 19, 1917 in her home theater. Well, back in her hometown, one of the earliest theaters in the state of Maine, and says, that's it. That's what I've got to do. She heard that there was a studio in uh, New York. So she makes a pest of herself and just says, I got to do this. And she starts just as Seamus Culhane and Walter Lance and everybody else who worked with her, by the way, um, she starts washing cells, and but pays attention. There were no schools at that point, obviously, so she's learning. She's picking up around her. She's she was apparently, according to her family, she had a, quite a bit of moxie, and uh, so she takes in everything she can. She's in love with this process, and she wants to learn every inch that she can. And so on her own. Uh, she would take extra paper, extra scenes, and I've, some of it's still sitting on my dining room table. Um, and she'd start creating her own characters, the first of which were a pair of mice. So she's credited mice. with... Mice, they'll never work in animation. No, no. <laughs> and especially not a pair. Um, but in approximately 1919, she develops the first animated mouse couple. <laughs> and that's one of her first pencil tests. Sadly, we don't have it, but according to various elements in the collection, that's uh, sort of the origins of it. So Roderick and Gladys were the name <laughs> of her mice. Um, but she, where we see them take off is, during, is at Aesop's Fables, at Paul Terry's Fable Studios. Um, she is part of Bray Studios. She works her way up to animating, assistant animating at Bray. Bobby Bumps, she works with Wallace Carlson on those. In fact, she's actually in the How Cartoons Are Made, the Wallace Carlson short from Bray Studios in 1919. She's had a penchant for lace collars, which were very fashionable. And you can see when he's sitting at his animation desk, there's a woman with a lace collar sitting in front of him, but you can only see the back side of her. That's Bessie May. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it isn't until 1920 Bray starts uh, an office in Chicago. 
and she goes there and she's one of the lead animators there and it's there that she works on the gasoline alley series um it was it's been long believed that nothing was made there was talk of doing films and you can track it through uh, the trade papers that indeed there were about four that were supposed to be initially created according to her family several were made they couldn't say exactly four but in the collection of the surviving materials uh, sadly one of the cans that had the most footage in just disintegrated but i was able to get a few ends onto a high-res scanner and we have images and then you have the walk cycles of a final completed film of gasoline alley and that was one of her strengths she could take a cartoon you know two-dimensional cartoons that we would see in the newspapers and uh, turn them into animated characters she uh, explored uh, frank king's certainly directing animating and directing on the gasoline alleys but she also was exploring Carrie Orr's characters and a few others out of Chicago, where you had, at that point, the greatest cartoon artists working at the Chicago Tribune. So it was another offshoot for Bray at that point. Where, and you think about it, a very wise one, because you had built-in audiences with the Sunday comic strips or the weekly comic strips that these artists would be creating. So... You know, look for them in your local theater. It was a great hit. So, why does her career come to an end, or maybe how how does it come to an end? Is the only question you can answer. I don't know. Yeah, it well, she about the mid twenties. She's been working with a wide range of people. She worked with Burton Holmes, who did you know the great travelogue uh, film and storyteller so she's been working with people who had made very good livings were very popular on the platform in vaudeville so she decides okay the hook is some a unique uh, act a unique spin so she bills herself as the only woman animator she's doing very well she's booked and travels she's on the keith alby circuit uh, she does regional chautauquas and lyceum circuits um, and for years, she's doing quite well. And in 1931, she meets a rather handsome um, engineer who's just graduated from Dartmouth, who is also on the circuits. He was a, 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 a barbershop quartet, part of a, a singer within a quartet. And uh, love ensues, and they marry. It's also the Depression. So... In order to find work, his family pressures them to, look, come back here. We, we want you back in Minnesota, which is where he was from. So they make the trek to the great state of Minnesota, but there isn't much happening there. She tries to find, continue her speaking and, and doing lectures, but it's, it's more of an agricultural region. Sure. She does some early storyboard work for 3M in uh, the late 40s, 50s with their uh, audio soundtrack. She does some illustrative advertising work. And there's a possibility she does a very early Scotty Dog series of uh, uh, sketches, storyboard sketches for a possible film out of 3M. 
Nobody can verify if this is the first instance of the Scotty Dog logo for Scotch Tape. Right. But um, she does uh, keep in touch with Walter Lance. They were very dear friends. In fact, in the collection, they're very uh, kind of rarely seen photos of him uh, as a mop-headed kid. It's very (laughs) sweet. They had a very dear friendship all throughout their lives. All right. So let's talk about you here. You found all this stuff and then you started, uh, I mean, following in her footsteps, you developed it as a uh, talk that you could give. Uh, and a, which, and a and, film. And so, there's a book yeah. and a film coming. So yeah. yeah. Tell me about that. Yeah. I received a very lovely um, Academy Film Scholar Award. And so I was intending to work on a very different book, more of an anthology of early women. But the collection for, for a woman, it's very rich. Usually you're only finding random papers or a few photographs the families might have or that might exist. And the women are unidentified Um, finding, you know, a couple of boxes and film stock and artwork is pretty extraordinary for uh, women and their collections, particularly in animation. So another colleague, once I'd made this discovery, um, said, oh, no, no, Mindy, you've got a book here. (laughs) Oh, it'll be small. Well, no. (laughs) (laughs) It's really shaping into almost a sister companion to the ink and paint book. Um, And uh, so it, hoping by next year we'll have this underway, but I'm still putting a few bits of final touches and and hence the subtitle, which is uh, in quotes, the only woman animator, Bessie Mae Kelly and women at the dawn of an industry. So I am going into a wide range of very early women that nobody's really ever known about and what their roles were and sort of how they contributed to the earliest origins of the animation industry. Now, how did, uh, I guess you had already given this talk at the San Francisco silent film festival. A much shorter version. Okay. I had about 25 minutes there to talk, and I couldn't show everything that I did at Portanone. Um, and I was also at the Hip Fest in oh, nice. uh, in Bonas, Scotland, uh, earlier this year. And if you ever get an opportunity, go. It's it's such a delight. I mean, Portanone as well, but um, the Hip Fest was just it, the theater itself is is a draw enough. But right. <laughs> uh, Alison Strauss, who, who curates that, just does a beautiful job. Again, brings in world-class musicians. And it's it's uh, if, if you want to dip your toe into silent film, that's a great way to do it. So how did uh, how'd the process of getting chosen for the Jonathan Dennis lecture go? Uh, oh, it was a complete surprise to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I had been out speaking and... and uh, got some lovely coverage, the New York Times piece. I knew when I found the material, um, one of the films, the earliest of the two surviving, uh, turns out are now the earliest surviving hand-drawn animation animated and directed by a woman. And uh, the earliest is from 1921, Flower Fairies. Uh, They were both made, the, the second is from 1922, and I, it was 1921 when I actually found the family and, and knocked on the door and, you know, held the materials in my hand. 2021. And yeah. Uh, tw- 20, yeah. Well, I feel like it was 1921. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 
2021. Um, it, I, and I went, oh, I'm right in the centenary of this. I've got to hustle. I got to get this going. Um, called literally that moment as soon as I, you know, we found the films, got colleagues at the Academy on the phone going, I've got nitrate. I'm coming in <laughs> at the height of the pandemic. So sure. gloved and masked, we had to exchange. I couldn't go in, but they, you know, sent me lab reports. And, um, but I knew the second film is called a Merry Christmas. And um, there were, it, it was largely complete. There were additional elements in the collection. So as the film was being preserved and restored, um, I, we could, you know, assess what her final goal was with the print that had survived. It had been created out of Chicago. Both films were made out of Chicago at a place called Brenner Studios. And I'm still trying to get to the bottom of uh, a Brenner himself, Otto Brenner. Um, but he had a, quite a regional reputation in the uh, late teens, early 20s in uh, the world of Chicago cinema in general. Chicago was sort of a primary hub then, even before, right as Hollywood was just starting. She kind of had free reign there, and she was able to edit, create, shoot, produce, whatever she needed to do, direct whatever she needed. And that's the case with these two films. Uh, Flower Fairies likely was distributed but you know we don't know how far reaching his films were it was a new name to me and to anyone else but if you do the research he's there um so uh, it's been interesting there's there's uh, it's unearthing new material in chicago and boston and new york and in minnesota so um some different regions we wouldn't have thought for film and animation You can follow Mindy Johnson's progress on Bessie Mae Kelly at her site, mindyjohnsoncreative.com. A link for that and for Nitrateville coverage of Portnone will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. In this country, rules are not imposed. They are the wish of all free citizens. Travel around a bit, then you'll see how free they are. Yes, but you didn't let me finish. They have every man in a straitjacket, and without a passport, he can't move a toe. But if you'll allow me to... In a free world, they violate the natural rights of every citizen. But you don't let me fool you. They have become the weapons of political despots. Yes, but may I... And if you don't think as they think, you're deprived of your passport. By the late 1940s and early 1950s, Charlie Chaplin was easing into the last phase of his career. He was rich, happy in his fourth marriage, and would make only three more films in the next two decades. It might have been easy street for him. But political paranoia was afoot in America, and a man who could have been viewed as an example of the promise of America instead became a target, hounded into exile by politicians and gossip mongers, who exploited his wartime praise for our ally Russia and the Joan Barry paternity case to paint him as a degenerate and a menace. 
One of our favorite returning guests, biographer Scott Iman, uses the story of Chaplin's post-war struggles not only to understand that phase of his career, but to mine it for insight into his art and life. In his latest book, Charlie Chaplin vs. America, When Art, Sex, and Politics Collided, out now from Simon & Schuster. I spoke with him from West Palm Beach, Florida. I just interviewed Lisa Steinhaven about her book about Chaplin at First mm-hmm. National. It struck me as a good way to approach someone like him who has a big life. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, not try and redo David Robinson's biography, but to pick a piece of it in an angle and take that angle, which you did. Mm-hmm. But you also, I mean, there's a lot of his story in here. So why why is there so much uh, of his life in in this focus on his uh, how he ended up getting booted from America. Well, it was a I, I, once I outlined to the estate what I wanted to do, and they said yes. And here's your password, and have fun roaming through the archive, the digital archives. Uh, then I had the problem of okay, now how do I? I mean, on the one hand, it's a small component of his life. It's basically ten or twelve years of his life, and but I couldn't assume that. Uh, everybody knew about what came before. I couldn't assume that everybody knew about his poverty in the 21st century, that there's a general knowledge about his poverty stricken childhood. Uh, or, or even if I couldn't assume that they knew about him getting kicked out of the country because it's 70 years ago. Right. So I had to real, I realized that I had to do some kind of prologue to get it up to speed, you know, to get it to into the thirties where his work becomes much more political and socially relevant. And uh, uh, and then I needed the, the the prologue as well to to close the story. So I mean the the, the epilogue to close the story. So it was uh, I, I never thought it was going to be a long long book. It's not. It's four hundred pages. You know, right. which is you know like a walk in the park for me. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, I could do four hundred pages even in my present uh, deracinated state. But uh, I didn't if if I hadn't included those sections, it's a 300 page book and it would feel skimpy. And I wanted to give a sense of the warp and woof of his life and the complexity of his of his character. And if you don't go into what comes before and what goes after, I think you get a diminished sense of who he was as a person and who he was as a person is directly related to what happened to him, you know. Yeah. Uh, his 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 absolute refusal to kowtow to any kind of authority, uh, his utter belief in his own sense of right and wrong, and his own sense of what he should be and who he should be as a human being. Uh, and if you don't and if you don't deal with the childhood and the young manhood, uh, then you don't. He he seems a, much more of a cipher to me and much more of a bullhead. Whereas if you know something about his first 20 years, it all seems to make sense. You know, a, a great deal of it seems to make sense. It, whereas without that, it wouldn't make sense. Yeah, I mean, it would just be a court case of some guy. Yeah, exactly. And as you put in the subtitle, when art, sex, and politics collided. And, I mean, that's really the stories that you have to tell right there. His art, yeah. his sex life, and then finally the politics that... Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And for him, I think, honestly, his sex life was an afterthought because he's very open in his memoirs. He says he was only really uh, uh, a prey to recreational sex when he wasn't working. Uh, And since a a picture would take, you know, a couple of years to make from writing to production to editing through the process, 
he was really only in the field, as it were, you know, in right. between those pictures. And, and that's absolutely true. You know, once you investigate and when I talking to Sydney all those years, 20 years ago, almost 20 years ago, uh, that he was a total compulsive workaholic. And once he was on a project, he didn't look up. He didn't go on vacation. He didn't see why anybody would want to go on vacation. Uh, he just, yeah. that was it. That was his life for those two or three years that it took to, to, to bring a project to fruition. Um, but there were those times between pictures and the Joan Barry thing happens after the great dictators released after it's a big success. Uh, he's doodling around with the reissue of the gold rush, but that's no big deal for him. You know, he can do that with his left hand because yeah. the picture's done. It's just a question of what do you leave and what do you take out? And here's the music score, you know? Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's when he starts, uh, he, when he gets restless and he looks around and the same thing happened with Paula Goddard. When they met, he was coming off of his world tour, uh, which he took because he hadn't had a vacation in 10 bloody years. So after, you know, city lights is launched, he decides to take 18 months off and tour the world, which is the only time he ever did it. You know, he, he was not a guy uh, to do that, but I think he felt he owed it, owed it to himself. Uh, and, and as soon as he gets back to California, he met Paul Goddard and that took up the next 10 years of his romantic life. So he's very consistent in that regard. Right. Yeah. No, I, it's interesting. I mean, people portray him at, as such a libertine when they're trying to attack him and really you read it and it's like, eh, by Hollywood standards, it doesn't seem that. Yeah. It's overstated, especially in the current, current environment, which is the current censorious environment. But I mean, I could have gone into, you know, any number of the uh, age appropriate women that he was involved with too, which I didn't because, you know, it's six months or whatever it was or three months and however long it lasts. And then they both move on. Uh, they weren't, th these are, these were much more the Goddard and Joan Barry, but Joan Barry only lasted a year, but it was a cataclysmic event without Joan. I can't prove it. I can't prove it. But my gut feeling is if Joan Barry had never happened, he wouldn't have been kicked out of the country. I think that was the trigger. Really? I think that was the, uh, far more than any of his political things because they could never, never nail him on any Right. Not anything serious politically. They just couldn't. Yeah. You know, he was a liberal. That's the worst they could throw at him. <laughs> yeah. I mean that yeah, you're right. I mean it's the one charge that could stick, even though he yeah. was he was let off of, you know, he even though he was innocent. He was pro <laughs> yeah, proved that he was yeah. right that he was not the father of her child, but I right. mean they, but they he was definitely guilty of having an affair with a much younger woman. Yeah. Um all right, so yeah, sex that uh, is certainly used as a as a weapon against him. Let's talk about art then, um, mm -hmm. and really what changed for him. I mean, I guess it kind of gets more political starting with modern times, but especially the great dictator. Yeah, modern times doesn't seem to me to be anywhere near as political as it was thought to be at the time. I mean, there's that whole uh, business with the red flag that he picks up and he's trying to help, you know, because it falls off the back of a truck and and, you know, and then the crowd comes up behind him and he doesn't know they're there, which is a silent movie gag because yeah. in sound he would hear them, you know, but <laughs> in a silent movie, you can get away with gags like that. And he's leading the march. And then suddenly the cops show up and he's he's guilty of leading a, you know, a, a theoretically communist march. Well, that's very funny. Uh, but but he's basically disavowing that whole idea, you know, that he's a communist. Right. Or that uh, he's leading anybody. Yeah. Or that he's leading anybody. Exactly. 
but his his attitude towards society is I always thought kind of understanding and benign. There's that wonderful, you know, the film opens with that wonderful montage of people trooping to the factory and the factory starting for the day and the assembly line starts and everybody's starting to go crazy, keeping up with production. And then we cut to the president of the corporation and he's doing a jigsaw puzzle. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I've worked for that place. Well, yes, we all have. We've all worked for those guys. And it's not that they're evil and it's not that they're vicious capitalists. Uh, it's just that they've got their own lives and they're not terribly interested in other people, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, that's kind of his vision of the world. It's not that the mass of people are, 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 you know, it's not the iron heel coming down the necks of the poor. They're just not that interested. People have their own lives. And, and I think that's a semi profound observation, you know, and I, I think it's essentially true now. Yeah, because uh, it involves human nature, and human nature never really changes. Right. Well, and also it's kind of how he was as an employer. Uh, you know, he it was it was. I mean, he retained people for years at a time, but it was kind of you know decades, you decades. Or decades. But you fit into your slot in the chaplain organization mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. And as long as you just did your job and didn't bother him. You know, you'd be there forever. Now you wouldn't make a lot of money, right? I mean, the, I, 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 I was curious. I don't, I don't, I think, I don't think I put it in the book. But Raleigh Tatherow made like one hundred twenty-five dollars a week. Yeah. Well, that, that's not even union scale, you know, because he wasn't in the union. He wasn't in uh, uh, ASC, American Society of Cinematographers. But he's paying paid below scale. On the other hand, he had a job for thirty-five years, right? So, <laughs> and it didn't bother him any. You know, so that's that that was the trade off. That was the trade off. It's interesting to me to read about the great dictator because it was Mm -hmm. it was a daring thing. I mean, by the time it came out, Warner Brothers had made a movie with Nazi in the title. So Mm -hmm. maybe by the time it came out, slightly less daring. But still, I mean, to just directly confront Hitler like that Mm -hmm. before the war started. um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean that. that and took... at a time, I mean, you, especially in context, if you realize, my God, he doesn't. I mean, he starts shooting in September of '39. It comes out in October of '40. We're an isolationist country. Congress is totally isolationist. The Jews aren't our problem. Uh, 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 Hitler's not our problem. We're just not going to deal with it. And and he's and the European market is already uh, lost to him at that point. So he's making a movie that can't be shown in Germany, France. Uh, Belgium, Italy, <laughs> right? And he knows this going in. I mean, uh, how many people would do this? Yeah. Really, you know? He's limited to America, and there's no guarantee he's going to be able to get theater circuits to play it. No, and he's he, like uh, he's looking at one point at like basically four walling it. You yeah, know? he was going to rent halls if he had to, and I'm I have no doubt in the world he would have. I it doesn't it. I'm sure he wasn't bluffing. He would have done that. You know, a it's it was a passion project. B he had a million four wrapped up in the negative, and he wanted to get it back. Uh, and C, by God, he was going to do it. And you know, once he he did not uh, deal with obstacles, he just go went over obstacles. And I, I I find I find that very admirable, Bob. I find his commitment to his work extremely admirable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right, so then politics. People start to suspect with 
the great dictator that he's I mean, it's not suspecting that he's kind of left leaning. He's pretty blatant about that, especially during the war. Um, But he, you know, at a time when it would have been good to say, I'm absolutely not a communist, I'm opposed to Russia, he tends to say sort of, you know, soft internationalist things about admiring Russia, holding up their end of the fight against Hitler, that sort of thing. Right, 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 right. Yeah, he was uh, open a second front. And, you know, for, he was pre, the, I mean, the great dictator brands him permanently as a premature anti-fascist, right. which doesn't do anybody any good in that era, at least especially after the war. They, they put up with those guys during the war because, you know, they could use them in, you know, the propaganda effort for, for, for the allies and all that. But after the war, when the when the uh, the right wing begins to coalesce uh, and, and and begin their campaign, uh all those premature anti-fascists were basically labeled as, as anti-American or if not anti-American pro-communist and Chaplin got lumped in with that, even though it's, it's just really, it's really annoying when you think about it more than annoying. It's enraging because, you know, when they called the Hollywood 10 to, uh, to, to testify in Washington, they had the roster of the membership of the American Communist Party. They knew everybody in Los Angeles that was a communist. The reason they called those 10 people was because they knew they were were in the party or had been in the party. You know, they were sitting ducks. They, they didn't call anybody who hadn't been in the party. And they could and, and, you know, and they knew by 1947 that Chaplin hadn't been in the party because they had the membership roster and they had also informers within the party. By that time, so he never attended meetings because he wasn't attended a guy to attend meetings. Uh, he'd never been in the party. He never donated money to the party. He was never a member. And the very idea of someone with his character, if you thought about it for a few minutes, with his nature and his character and his rage for independence, the idea of him ever being in any kind of organization with a top-down structure would be insane. He wouldn't right. last ten minutes. He just wouldn't <laughs> last ten minutes. Uh, so it's a non-starter, but still he was an apostate. That was his crime. He was an apostate. He was an apostate when it came to, uh, uh, helping the Russians during the war because the right believed that Russia could never really be our ally, simply our enemy in waiting. And given history, that's not a totally illogical point of view. (laughs) I'll give them some of that. Okay, fine. But in this case, they carried it way, way, way too far. And uh, the thing, the interesting thing is, if you read the FBI file carefully, the FBI guy in Los Angeles was named Richard Hood. He ran the Los Angeles office uh, of the FBI. And Hoover, every once in a while, depending upon his state of agitation, would uh, send out messages to Hood, uh, intra-office messages about another investigation into Charlie Chaplin. And at a certain point, Hood knows that Chaplin is innocent of what... Hoover is trying to prove and he stops responding because it's pointless. You know, there's nothing new to report. Right. Uh, and six months will go by and Hoover will realize that he hasn't heard from hood about his latest findings about Charlie Chaplin and he yanks the leash. And at that point, hood will come in with something, uh, generally saying, you know, uh, we have this one guy who's, who is utterly unreliable you know, blah, 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 blah. And Hoover will say, well, ignore it because he knew the the informer was unreliable. But 
they, it, Hoover was like a dog with a bone, literally. Uh, he would forget about it and forget about it and forget about it, then return to it and demand Hood do something. And Hood would, after a certain point, grudgingly do something and come up with nothing because by that time there was nothing to come up with. And this went on for 10 years, fully 10 years from 1942 to 1952. Yeah, the length of their obsession with him is one of the things that just seems, you know, aren't there like gangsters to catch or something? You know? Well, yeah, but see, he was the, he was the, he was the plum. Chaplin was the plum. I mean, really, who cares if you're, if you're canning a bunch of screenwriters and sending them to jail for 10 months, right. nobody knows who the screenwriters are. They had no public profile, right? They weren't, they weren't hostages to fortune. Chaplin was a worldwide figure. Uh, who represented artistry? He represented Hollywood. He represented the uh, the fierce individualist. To to nip off Chaplin meant a lot more than nipping off ten screenwriters. Yeah, damn it, they've gone too far. Alva Bessie, they can't take Alva <laughs> Bessie. You know, <laughs> that's funny. Um, you know, one of the things years ago, I was doing some research and came across. Yeah, I think it was probably Hedda Hopper. Going after Olivier's movie of Hamlet because Hamlet of Hamlet exactly because how dare an Englishman try to take our Oscars, you know just this idea, <laughs> you know, and it's which is hilarious now because the Oscars have been so so British for so long, right, but right. but it was just you know this mania about England. So it was yet, her nativist thing extended past uh, past Charlie Chaplin. Maybe yeah. it was Englishman. <laughs> yeah, something about, you know, we can't let those Englishmen, you know, come in and take over our industry. Well, mm-hmm. it happened, mm-hmm. lady. Uh, yeah, but, yeah. but yeah, I mean, it was just that level of mania about, you know, protecting, you know, American movies for Americans. Homeland. Or, no, yeah, the Homeland. Homeland. The homeland. Yeah, 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 yeah. was just bizarre to me. But I mean, it was definitely well. In the air. You have to under, You have to read a lot of Hedda Hopper uh, uh, correspondence, <laughs> and it'll become clear to you. Read uh, the the her file in the Nixon Library is absolutely fascinating, absolutely fascinating, because she was constantly haranguing him about one thing or another. Because she she had supported him from the time he was a congressman, and she was thrilled when he got elected to the Senate, and she he was like her personal project, and. <laughs> <laughs> and and she's she's writing him and haranguing him and telling him how to vote and, and what needs to be done and this that and the other thing. She's like this Budinsky aunt, you know, <laughs> elderly aunt with nothing better to do. And she's writing a daily column, <laughs> so she was very organized and very driven and very focused, you know. And other than her column, uh, uh, getting rid of all the commies was her mania. Was her mania, and and Nixon. All Nixon handles her like uh, uh, like you would an elderly aunt who's watching too much Fox News. <laughs> yeah, he says, "Yes, you're absolutely right. I couldn't agree with you more." Maybe you know, blah 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 blah, and then he changes the subject. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and then and three weeks later, she writes him again with another hectoring note. Uh, and this was the relationship. This was the relationship. So he gives her an ear, sort of. He always he responds to her. But he never really says, yeah, I'm going ahead with it. Because by the time 
this thing comes to fruition. He's running for vice president with Eisenhower as president. And he's got bigger fish to fry than Charlie Chaplin, which had not been the case a year or two earlier when he was just you know getting elected to the Senate. Now, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I kind of expected uh, Hedda Hopper to be you know, nuts on this subject and certainly Westbrook Pegler or someone like that, or William Wilkerson, but to read that Ed Sullivan was such a dick about it was kind of amazing mm-hmm. to me, you know, not nice little talks to Topo Gigio, Ed Sullivan. Come on. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah. He was lighting the fire, the funeral fires too, as, as, as stringently as Westbrook Pegler and taking handouts from the uh, erroneous handout, disinformation handouts from the FBI the whole time. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, he was he was uh, not a nice guy, and he <laughs> he did a lot of things during the blacklist era. I mean, he convinced Jerome Robbins to inform. I mean, he did terrible things during the blacklist period, Ed Sullivan. But it all got nobody 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 knew about it until the files began uh, becoming public in the seventies and eighties, and by that time the show's off the air and he's dying. You know. Um. All right. So, I mean, how does it all build this this move to? kick Chaplin out of the country. So there's, there's people, you know, the hoppers and so on who are nitpicking at him. How else does it come to a fever pitch? Well, he makes Monsieur Verdoux, uh, which is the wrong movie at the wrong time. Clearly. Uh, I go into a lot of that. Uh, Cause it's a, it's a, it's a, it, he got away with the great dictator because his timing was right. He didn't get away with Monsieur Verdot, which was the first flop he ever had, which is amazing if you think he'd been in movies for almost 25 right. years at that point. But yeah. he'd never had a flop. Even Woman of Paris eked out a profit. And I like Woman of Paris, you know, but it's a, it's a one-off in his career. He never tried it again. Uh, uh, but but Monsieur Verdot was an honest-to-God flop. Now, it did okay in Europe. He probably actually broke even on it when you factor in Europe. Uh, but it was a catastrophe in America and it confirmed a lot of the things that uh, had been brooded about, about him in the disinformation campaign, you know, that he was uh, a misogynist because it's a movie about a guy who marries rich women and kills them for their money. And when he's caught, he blames society. Well, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Okay. It's not going to go over Uh, at the Rotary Club for sure. No, no, it's not going to go over at the Rotary Club. And also, as just as the paternity trials getting underway in 1943, uh, he marries Una O'Neill, Eugene O'Neill's daughter, who is 18 years old. And he's 53 or 54. And I can't, this is another thing I can't prove, but I think it, it goes to, it goes to image. By the time he's 50, Chaplin has white hair right. and he looks more like 70 than 53 or 54. He looks old, right. which exacerbates the con, the, the, the age gap between him and his new wife, Uno O'Neill. But it seems to confirm all the things about, uh, you know, this loose degenerate that were being thrown around at the uh, paternity trial. Now, of course, at the time, nobody knew that they were going to be married for the rest of his life and have eight kids and be deliriously devoted to each other because he'd never been deliriously devoted to anybody. Right. But he was with her. She was the right woman at the right time and for her, for him. And he was the right man at the right time for her because each of them gave something they desperately needed. Absolute acceptance. Yeah. Because she had never had acceptance from her father. Uh, who was a prick. 
she had never had uh, a, a real acceptance from the men she dated in New York who just wanted to go to bed with her, you know. Uh, and here was this this smart, handsome, uh, distinguished uh, genius of an older man who was madly in love with her. And on his part, he'd never had a woman who accepted him for what he was. They all wanted to diddle with him on the side and change him and make him this and make him that, you know. And she just thought he was wonderful the way he was. And because she accepted him, he never looked at another woman. And because he accepted her, she never needed any other man. So it was a perfect relationship. Who'd have thunk it? Yeah. <laughs> but but at the time, it seemed like a confirmation of everything that was going on in the press and being said about him in the press and being said about him in the courtroom. So between that, between that and Monsieur Verdue, which comes out of uh, three or four years later, game set match. No, it's it's interesting that, I mean, they really rake him over the coals for marrying his his wife and being happy with her you know it's mm -hmm. like there are worse things he could be doing right now folks but yeah 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 but it was it was it it it, it. on the other hand he wouldn't have changed a thing you know if he if he would have asked, if he would have said okay if you don't marry her you can stay in california for the rest of your life he would no he would he wouldn't have done that if it was presented to him that way he would have married her and left you know not that he would have left on his own he never would have left on his own he was not. He lived in one house uh, from nineteen what eighteen nineteen nineteen till uh, they kicked him out of the country. He didn't move around. He had one studio. You know, he was very staid and set in his ways uh, socially and and emotionally. So he was not. Uh, and at sixty three, when he left, the, when he got kicked out of the country, uh, he thought he had about ten years left. There's a letter where he figures he's got 10 or 12 years, maybe, you know, and uh, all he wanted to do was uh, watch his family grow and make more movies. So he was not going to go on his own. He left the country thinking he could get back in because he had been promised or, he, you know, they'd issued, he had, he had, he had applied for a reentry permit because he was not a citizen. He was a resident alien. Uh, and uh, they'd issued him a reentry, the INS gave him a reentry permit he got on a boat, the Queen Elizabeth, with his wife and four kids. They had four kids by that time uh, to attend the, the London premiere limelight. And then he was going to take uh, the kids and his wife on a small tour of London, show them his, his – because Una had never been there. And he was going to show them where he grew up, Lambeth. He was going to take them on Lambeth. And maybe they'd go to Paris after that and open it and open the picture in Paris and then London and then Italy and then come home. So it was going to be a month or two of a trip. And one day out of New York, uh, he got the cable that his reentry permit had been rescinded and he would have to uh, uh, come back for a hearing to uh, uh, determine his worth to enter the country. And uh, that was it. And now what he did not know was that a week after he got the uh, notice that his reentry permit was rescinded, they had a meeting at the INS saying that if he comes back, we're going to have to let him in the country. He said, we can make a stink about it, but he's never been convicted of a crime. And that's how they got rid of people like the mafia. Right. You know, they get they get they get the mafia guys on income tax evasion, typically. Well, that's a felony. And then they could deport them, even though they were citizens, you could still deport them. Uh, Chaplin had never been convicted of anything. They'd gone over and they they had done his 
they they had gone over his corporate taxes with a fine tooth comb, his personal income taxes with a fine tooth comb, and he picked. I mean, he he paid his taxes. They had nothing on him. Uh, so if he had decided to come back and challenge the uh, the reentry permit, they would have had to let him back in the country. But he was enraged. His back was up. He wasn't going to be uh, stay any place where he wasn't wanted. So he uh, 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 basically just kept going. He stayed in London for a while to try to figure out what he was going to do. Went to Paris to open Limelight there. Limelight turned out to be a massive success, critically and commercially. It's a lovely picture. It's the last good picture he made, I think. Right. Uh, and uh, settled down in Switzerland finally. Uh, but uh, the letters that I found, which nobody else has gone into, he was really angry. He was bitter, really bitter. What, there's one one letter where he says, "I wouldn't go back there if Jesus Christ was president." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he he was angry, you know. And I mean, I think that's I think he was justified in being angry, you know. And and still the campaign con, uh, continued because they had to justify the behavior. They had to justify uh, 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 rescinding his reentry permit. So the stories got even wilder. My favorite, my absolute favorite, is after he got kicked out of the country. Uh, about nine months later, a story went around in the press that he was going to adopt the children of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, right. who had just been put to death. That's my favorite disinformation story of all time. You know, and I mean, how do you even respond to lunacy like that? You know, he would have had he wouldn't have been able to make any movies or raise his children if he was actually dealing with stuff on a daily basis. So most of it he let fly. He just let it go. Yeah. You know, uh, and also once he once he got to Europe he saw the madness in even greater relief, you know, uh, and, and the distance gave him, gave him a sense of maybe they did me a favor. Maybe they did me a favor. They didn't do him a favor, not right. in terms of his work. Cause the two films he made after he left are, are not anywhere near up to his standard. Yeah. No, you, you make a good point about the, just sort of disconnected him from the regular life in America, which was, what his he'd been feeding off of at that point. I mean, it's interesting. You mentioned that it's the last film he saw was Barry Lyndon. And mm -hmm. I kind of, yeah, think, a couple months before he died. Right. And I kind of think of him as being like Kubrick around the time of eyes wide shut, trying to make a movie about, you know, sex life in America. And you, you know, you're on your country estate and you haven't been to America in 30 years. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. what do you know about, you know, people of dating or adultery age or whatever. Right. And what do you, what do you know? What, what, what did Kubrick know about orgies? He didn't seem to ever, ever attend an orgy. Right. I, I get no, I don't get that vibe off Kubrick. No. Exactly. No. Uh, but, but yeah, it's, uh, it's an ironic thing for Chap the last movie Chaplin saw. On the other hand, it's, it's a high art movie. So, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how much he could have gotten out of it in this condition. He was, pretty, <laughs> he was failing rapidly by October of 1977. But, well, well, yeah, it's, it's pretty. It, oh, it's yeah. lovely. It's a beautiful yeah. film. Shot by shot. It's a beautiful film. I just wish it was an hour shorter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, he, in the same way, he's kind of disconnected from everything at that point, except being an old rich man. So, well, literally, his the cord's been yanked out of the wall. The the electric cord of 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 his consciousness has been yanked out of the wall. I write in the book that if you live in New York or London or Los Angeles 
or Miami for that matter, you know, you're abraded constantly in very creative ways. If you're an artist, if you're a creator, because you're reading the newspaper, you're arguing with people over politics with parties, you're, 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 you're just surrounded by tumult, intellectual tumult, psychological tumult, emotional tumult. Now on some level, I'm sure he needed peace and quiet after what he'd gone through for the previous 12 years. There's no question in my mind that Switzerland on that level was a restorative for him psychologically and emotionally, but socially and in terms of his craft, it was disastrous because as, as Jerry Epstein said, he, there's not a lot to do in Switzerland. People yeah. go to Switzerland to get away from the world. They want, they want to, they want it's, they go there for tax reasons and they go there to lessen the volume. Well, that's okay. But not if you're an artist, right? Not if you're an artist. I don't think Noel Coward did much of value after he moved to Switzerland either. You know, yeah. it just, it's, it's not conducive to the work. It really isn't. You listen to, you watch the goats eat grass. Well, okay. <laughs> Okay, but that's not going to do you much good when it comes to writing a three-act script. Yeah. Now, it is nice that he lived long enough to for a certain amount of rediscovery. Not that he had ever gone away in the the way that... Well, the Keaton films did. went away. The yeah. films went away. Nobody saw a Chaplin movie for 20 years after that, after he left the country. I saw, I saw Bootleg Prince. I saw Bootleg Prince of City Lights and Modern Times. I saw a lovely bootleg print of The Great Dictator in an attic in uh, Case Western Reserve University in 1969 or 70. Uh, but typically, no, the stuff was out of out of distribution. He wouldn't allow it to be distributed here. And I don't think uh, uh, there was any great demand on the part of distribution to uh, put the Chaplin films out either. But when the his autobiography came out in 1964 and was a huge hit, and it's a good book, and continues to be read. Uh, that kind of prepped the way for it. And there, his films got reissued in New York uh, as a prep for as a coming attraction for the autobiography. And then he started thinking about making a deal for the film library, uh, which took till 1971 to bring to fruition. But it happened, and suddenly all the films were in constant distribution and continued to be in constant distribution ever since. Um, so it's been. 50 years basically that we've you know we've had chaplain films so they don't now in in 2023 have the same impact that they had when you saw monsieur verdue for the first time in 1972 or 1973 or the great dictator or modern times because those films had been out of release so there had been an entire generation that had literally had not seen them except for people like me and who were trooping up into attics and Case West Reserve <laughs> University in right. Cleveland, Ohio. And how many of them were there, really? There aren't that yeah. many. So uh, for the general public, it was a, a, a real uh, sudden lightning bolt of enlightenment to see the Chaplin films again. And they were quite successful. And they've continued to be quite successful. But along comes Buster Keaton. And as I write, Chaplin is still popular, but he's no longer fashionable. Right. And one of the things I wanted to do, and I love Keaton. I don't find him particularly funny. He doesn't make me laugh the way Chaplin can make me laugh. Okay. I find him brilliant. I shake my head and say, my God, look at the framing. Look at this, look at that. <laughs> but I, I don't, I, I'm not on the ground laughing. I must tell you. Uh, but that's an individual, you know, people find different comedians, very funny. So at some point in history, people laughed at Red Skelton. I don't understand it. <laughs> 
I don't understand it, but he was, he was, he was, he was successful at MGM for 10 years and he was successful on TV for 20 years. Someone must've liked him, Yeah, you know, but it's, it's incomprehensible to me, but Keaton is much more fashionable now than Chaplin is. And one of the things I wanted to do with the book is to put Keaton, I mean, is to put Chaplin in the broadest context because he wanted to be more than just a comedian. He knew that at bottom, that's what he was. I don't think he ever had the least doubt about that, that that was his, that was his core identity. Uh, and every film he made, he, even something like Verdue has very funny things in it. The scenes with Martha Ray are really good. And the garden party scene is also excellently done in terms of comedy. Um, but he did have a broader horizon. He was concerned with the life of the world around him in a way that most comedians aren't because most comedians are, mm, what's the kind word insular. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. But Chaplin was Chaplin read the newspaper. He really did. He was, he was tuned into the bigger picture and I think he gets points for that. And he was able to use it at least in things like great dictator and modern times, you know, use his awareness of the world and the things he wanted to say in a way that still served as comedy. And I think later on, that's not really true. I mean, there kind of isn't any comedy in a King in New York to, to serve. I like the scene where he gets his face lifted. And he looks like the family. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The first time I saw that I was in hysterics. I thought that that's by far, I think the funniest thing in the picture. Uh, it has nothing to do with the movie. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's a standalone gag that he obviously thought was funny. And he was right. It is funny. Beyond that, I'm not going to make any great claims for the picture. Right. What do you think his travails that you chronicle tell us about him and his art, as well as his sex and his politics? <laughs> it tells me, well, it tells me how he managed to make the art because he would not be dissuaded. He would not be diverted. Uh, he would not be destroyed. Old age destroyed him. Nothing else destroyed him. Uh, his sense of himself was astonishing and his spinal strength i find amazing uh he uh he never really believed in society as a as a general rule I, his childhood gave him that you know whatever whatever society said however society tries to define itself he thought was self-serving and had no, nothing to do with reality he believed the man has to define himself Every man has to define themselves and he defined himself through his connection to comedy and through his connection to comedy's largest component society at large. And that's why the work lasts. That's why people still see modern times as relevant. A movie made in 1936 as social, a silent movie made in 1936 right. as socially and politically relevant. And the great dictator is socially and politically relevant in 1940 because the authoritarian mindset is always with us somewhere. It's a, uh, it's a staff infection that circulates through <laughs> the body politic and nothing. There's no, there's no penicillin that gets rid of it. You know, it just goes into abeyance and then it comes roaring back. And if you take nothing else away from the book, I, I think it's important to realize that everything that's happening today in America and the world at large has happened before and it will happen again if we don't get swamped by it this time. Uh, that's what, that's the value of seeing Chaplin's work 
is that, oh, he went through this and we're going through it now. And he, he, he dealt with it. He dealt with it through his art. And, 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 and I, the best comedy is connected to something beyond, beyond, uh, uh, condom jokes. You know, (laughs) I think, I think of Larry David as in very much in the chaplain mode for all the narcissism of the character he plays. He's very connected to the real world, very connected to the real world. And I, 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 but I, if you, if you told Larry David that, I think he'd turn red with embarrassment. <laughs> you know, if you, if you compared him to Charlie Chaplin. But I see a lot of, I, I see a lot of similarities. Charlie Chaplin versus America, When Art, Sex, and Politics Collided, by Scott Iman, is out now from Simon & Schuster. A link will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Thanks to my guests, Lockie Heiss, Mindy Johnson, and Scott Iman, and to Rebecca Rosenberg at Simon & Schuster. Music is by Kevin McLeod and Brett Van Donsel. Thanks for listening, and if you have a chance, leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks. Have you finished?